So welcome everyone. It's not surprising that uh, there's a large turnout for cultivating wholesome relationships because uh, hopefully we're aware enough to know that this particular part of our life relating to other human beings and even relating to other non-human beings is has so much to do with the happiness, the actual happiness we experience and the unhappiness that we experience in life. So I want to just say a few things about the Buddhist studies class. One is that uh, even though it's a big group now, we try to have quality of commitment and community. So it's different than the Wednesday night program and the Sunday morning and Sunday evening program that are dropped in, and we expect people to commit to the eight weeks, or if it's a shorter Buddhist studies class, to commit for that many weeks. Now, that doesn't mean you can be here every Monday night. You might have a business trip, or you might have family obligations that you can't get out of, or you might get sick. But when you can be here, the commitment is that you'll be here for the class. And the idea is, a lot of times in these sort of settings, We like anonymity. I could not be here and no one would notice. Well, you might notice if I'm not here, but if you didn't come, you know, you have the sense like, I could get away with it. So, but don't get away with it. You know, like, because it changes the tone of the group. When there's a, a mutual sense of commitment to the study and to the study together, to the unpacking, of this part of our life together, it really we all get supported because of that. So, if that doesn't sound like what you're interested in, then just send an email sometime this week to me and let me know you're not interested in the course. But if you're interested, it's great. And even it's great if you have to miss four Mondays because of business travel or, you know, you have four children, and each of them have a concert on Monday night, one week after the next. That's okay. And you shouldn't feel guilty about that at all, or you get sick. But the idea is when you can be here, you'll be here. And the idea for this group is that we're people who know enough about this path of awakening that we're inspired enough to actually practice. So we're not just here admiring the practice or the teachings of the Buddha, we're actually putting them into practice. And we do have a criteria. It's a bit arbitrary, but, you know, that's how it is sometimes. And the the criteria is you're inspired enough about these teachings that you put some time aside to really dig into them. And we call that going on a retreat. It could be a half-day retreat, a day-long retreat, a three-month retreat. But that you're interested enough that you put some time aside. Now, I'm pretty flexible, so if somebody's really gung-ho and haven't, I think we ask for three mindfulness retreats as a prerequisite. I'm willing to work with people who have a lot of enthusiasm and commitment and are going to be doing those retreats or have done informal retreats on their own. But the criteria is you're not a casual Uh, observer of the practice. You're somebody who feels alive with the practice. This makes sense in my life. I want to deepen this practice. I want to aim my life in the direction of wakefulness in all these different ways, like spending eight weeks waking up to this world of relationships or relating because it's so essential So this is a six-year curriculum. Some of you know this, and it's designed to be repeated many times. Some of you are even on your third round, I know, some of the people in the group. Some of you are getting started, of course. So we're we're basically going through the different teaching models the Buddha used or different themes that the Buddha touched on with the different models that he used in his 45 years or so of, uh, of teaching back. 2,500 years ago. 
So you probably noticed we have an optional sit starting at 7. It's okay to come a little bit late, but if you're more than 5 minutes late, just practice outside or in the lobby. Or if the community room's not being used, you can practice in the community room. And then that sit ends at 7.25, and either we'll open the doors or you'll hear me ring the bell at 7.25, and then you can come in and join us if you can't make or don't want to make the 7 o'clock sit. And uh, Dave Halsey organizes the program hosts. And how many more do you need, Dave? So if you're able to get here early and help set up the room and basically organize all the other um, your classmates who come early to get the room set up for everybody who can't get here early and then help get everything back put away at the end of the evening. If you're willing to take one night, Dave's looking for two more people and you could just connect with him afterward. It's nice to wear name tags. Nope, I didn't wear mine. <laughs> Especially every other week when we meet in small groups, then it's really expected that you have a name tag on. Because you'll be with people who you've been seeing for years, but they won't know your name or remember your name, and it will be embarrassing. So it's just an act of taking care of each other to have your name tag on. It really helps all of us. So I have a number of articles already up on our webpage, BuddhaStudies.CommonGroundMeditation.org. Cultivating all of the Buddhist studies classes are there the ones that we've done over the last several years at least. And that's where the talks will be. So if you miss a week or you want to listen again to the guided meditation or the talk, you go to the website, BuddhaStudies.CommonGroundMeditation.org, and you can get that, including the articles I've put up. If you know of really good articles around cultivating wholesome relationships, coming at it from a Buddhist perspective, then send them to me. And I'll take a look and I'll put them up if they seem like they're a good fit. Because this, uh, the purpose of the class is this getting skilled at this essential art of contemplation. So we have a present moment experience. And the idea is we receive some teachings. We read an article, you hear a talk, you have a conversation with a friend who's also practicing. You get a little information, a new perspective, and that's not the end of it. That's really just the beginning. Then we take that new information or new perspective and we use it in conjunction with our direct actual experience of the mind and body or our lived experience out in the world with other human beings, other creatures. And we see if that new information, that new perspective clarifies or illuminates our actual experience. This is what we mean by contemplating the Dhamma, contemplating the way it is, or contemplating the information from people who have looked deeply into their own lives and then articulated what they came to understand. So now we're checking it out. Like, is that perspective useful? Does it illuminate, clarify my lived experience or not? So that means we have to put some time in. Some of you will be able to put a lot of time in. Some of you less time in. But everybody should do a little study. And mostly what I do, and I'll mention different articles in my talks, but mostly I just put a lot of different things up because I'm of the mind that the more medicine, the better. And everyone needs slightly different medicine. And so snoop around. Look at the different articles. See what interests you, and then dig in a little bit and talk to each other about what was useful that you read. And sometimes we read something that we don't like at all, but it's very clarifying because it you don't agree with the person. Your experience doesn't match up, but it, that doesn't mean it won't help you understand your experience. It might really help you understand your experience. This is the right way to relate to teachers. We don't, you know, teachers are anything. It could be an article. It could be an experience we're having at work. It could have pain in the knee. could be our most important teacher right now. So teachers come in all kinds of disguises. And the fact is that many of our best teachers aren't pleasant. 
or aren't what we would have consciously chosen. But that doesn't mean they're not our best teachers. They haven't really helped us in our life, in our practice of understanding. I want to thank Caleb, and maybe Max is going to help too, do the recordings and get them up. So if anybody wants to support the audio team, you can see Caleb, who's sitting right here. And it's a big, I don't know, he has maybe 10 people helping him out. Caleb organizes all those folks, all kinds of different pieces to getting the uh, all the talks at the center up on the website for other people to use. And we have people all over uh, following the Buddhist studies. There's a couple in Australia that have been doing the Buddhist studies class for years. And another woman recently, do you know where she lives? Florida. So I uh, really appreciate the people who helped with that. And then Shelly has helped get some of the new folks' email addresses up on our Buddhist studies email list. So I'll send out an email tomorrow. If you don't get an email from me tomorrow around the Buddhist studies class, then send me an email, and I'll make sure you get on. Mark at org. Anything about the nuts and bolts of the class? Thich Han said, if you don't want to be changed, don't go into dialogue. So here's your chance. If you don't want to change, yeah. Uh, you can take a look at the newsletter. There's a new fall newsletter out there. Half-day retreats are usually the first or second uh, Saturday of the month, and day long is usually the last Saturday of the month. But this month, the uh, half-day is coming up on the 20th, so this Saturday afternoon is there's a half-day retreat. Yeah, Stephen. I think what we have are plastic sleeves, and you can print uh, on a piece of uh, cardstock and slide it into one of the plastic sleeves, and then organize it according to your last name in the appropriate bin so you can find it in the weeks to come. And they're in the top tray, I think. Got any other nuts and bolts? I'll go back to that opening quote, which I like a lot. Uh, if you don't want to be changed, don't go into dialogue. So one of the, uh, and this is true with life generally, because life is, I mean, the, it's such a useful definition of what this is. This is an ongoing relationship. The heart or mind or whatever you want to call this knowing, sensitive part of our being is knowing, is relating to the present moment. And this is a subjective or an internal reality. So this is one of the things I'd like to cover tonight and uh, we'll have time to talk before we end at nine, if you have comments or questions. Because we have such an external orientation, just culturally, we're programmed to have a very strong external orientation, and this is seen very clearly in terms of relationships. One of the exercises in uh, John Wellwood's book, if we have time, we'll do it tonight. Perfect Love, Imperfect Relationships. Nice book. He's a well-known psychologist and author. and uh, But he has this exercise where, you know, well, let's just do it now. It may be a good time, good way to begin. So if you bring to mind a uh, time in your life a relationship in your life where you felt held, respected, loved. And don't try to get just the right one, just a relationship that seemed real and healthy. And use your imagination and your memory to bring the situation to mind. 
And in particular, notice how your heart feels as you're remembering this experience of being loved, being liked, being included. And in this exercise, he's inviting us to notice that the actual feeling of being loved or being held or being respected, being included, that that feeling is here now in the heart. It exists in the heart now. You can bring other examples in your life of being embedded in a good community or a good relationship, a good friendship, a loving relationship, playing with your dog. But even if there's a lot of, from an external point of view, would be a lot of mutuality a lot of give and take in the relationship, but still it's being felt here in the heart like this. We don't want to miss that the reality of relationships or to make it a verb, the reality of relating to people, to life, that reality is felt in the heart or the sort of residual is a feeling in the heart. That's what we're left with. So the two points that I encourage you to bring into your this week's reflection. And we'll have small groups next week. I did mention that for people who are brand new. Every other week we break, we take the last half an hour of the class and we'll break into groups of three. And you can just share what you've been learning or not learning, what you're confused by in those small groups. And I'll talk more about them next week. But the two points that I encourage you to just play with during the week as you dig into this area. One is that uh, instead of thinking in terms of relationships as a noun, as a defined entity, I have my relationship with my wife, I have my relationship with the Common Ground community, I have my relationship with my family. I have my relationship with my wider community, the United States of America or Minneapolis, Twin Cities area. You know, and these, each relationship is, you know, it has its own sort of edifice. It's a thing. But I leave that idea behind and to see it more in a dynamic nature like it's a it's always changing and that's really nice because then we can get interested in how it is as a dynamic in this moment and how that way of relating can become more beautiful like we were doing with the body in our guided sit tonight so as messed up as my relationship might be with this particular person in my life if it's truly a dynamic, an unfolding dynamic, then I can really, moment by moment, see what's making it so screwed up or how might it become 
how might it start to heal and become wiser and more enlivening in my life and maybe for that person too. So that's one thing to play with, to learn how to leave behind the idea of relationships and see everything in terms of relating. And this happens not only when you're with that particular person or if you're using your relationships with your pets when you're not with your pet. Because even when you bring, even when I bring wind to mind, for example, or my sibling, one of my siblings to mind, I'm right then relating to the idea I have about that person. Or if I'm at home thinking about my role at Common Ground and the Common Ground community, well, right then and there, I'm relating to the idea. See, and this really helps us with the second point, that it's an internal experience. We're really looking here. Because what we think is, I need to work on my relationship out there. And I'm not saying we don't need to work on our relationships out there in the world. How, What kind of body language I have, what I say, what I don't say, how much time I'm with that person or with my cat. All of those things, obviously, they really matter. But for the purposes of this class and from the point of view of the Buddhist teachings, it's a good time to emphasize the internal process of relating. And it will, I guarantee it, it will change all the externals. What you do say, what you don't say, how much time you do spend or don't spend with all the people you're relating to in your life, all the beings. But we want to Understand it's a dynamic process that's happening in our hearts. So we, this is what we need to pay attention to. What's going on in the heart? How's the heart doing when this, whenever this person is in the mind, in mind, in front of me in mind, or not in front of me, but in, in the mind, in my mind, in, in my awareness? What is the mind doing? What is the heart doing? What is the heart feeling? What is the mind-heart doing with that feeling? This is another activity from uh, the book Perfect Love and Perfect Relationships by John Wellwood that I thought we could do now. Again, just a reflection. and You can do this several times during the week. It's, it uses this um, dynamic that I'm sure most of you have tried uh, in different ways that it's quite powerful because it's repeating some questions over and over again. And you might have noticed the first time we ask ourselves a question, we get usually a pretty superficial answer. But if we keep asking the heart, the mind, the same question over and over again, we may not like it, but if we make ourselves respond internally in our mind, we keep getting a little deeper into the questioning, into the unpacking or opening up, seeing maybe what we don't usually see. Now you can do this in a pair. So if you want to do this with a partner at home where you ask the person these two questions in a relaxed, slow way, so they have time to reflect, and then you ask it again, then do that. So I'll do that for the whole group and for myself. So hear the question, and then just see what response comes. And then hear the next question, see what response comes. And then I'll ask the same two questions again, and I'll do this maybe a dozen times or so. So remember, even in this uh, physical sense, you can feel the heart center, but ultimately the heart isn't located, it's located everywhere. But energetically, we tend to imagine that the sensitivity where we feel happy and feel unhappy is somewhere in the heart area. So feeling the heart, 
What kind of love do you most long for? And what would that really give you? Feel free to use a different word, substitute a different word for love. You could use the word relationship, what kind of belonging. So again, what kind of love do you most long for? What would that really give you? What kind of love do you most long for? And what would that really give you? You can address that second question. What would that really give you in terms of a feeling? or an inner experience. What kind of love do you most long for? And what would that really give you? What kind of love do you most long for? What would that give you? What kind of love do you most long for? What would that give you? So feel free to pick that up. Sometimes it's nice to surprise the mind, you know, like when it just shows up in your mind during the middle of a busy day. And then just ask, what kind of heart, what kind of love does this heart long for? What does this heart really want? And what do I imagine would come from that? There's, um, you know, often we think of desire as a negative thing, but desire is neither ultimately neither negative or positive. It's just life energy, really. You know, as a living being, there is this movement of desire. And some of that, Movement of desire is, you know, just part of the genetic code that comes with being a mammal. Some of it's cultural, and we got programmed in our youth to desire this or that. So the 
the question is more like how we understand desire, what we do with desire. And obviously one of the things where there's a, one of the places where there's a lot of desires around relationships or social energy, sexual energy, social energy, belonging, we're social beings. So we don't need to uh, be afraid or we don't need to be judgmental of this force. It's just part of the momentum we experience in our mind, heart, body that has to do with relating, being part, belonging, being connected, having a sense of where we belong or how we belong, how we relate, who we are on this very relative conventional way, who we are is really something we define together. You know, we participate together in creating on this relative level, conventional level, meaning. And even if we decide to hide out, you know, become a recluse, we're still working together to define ourselves, you know. Oh yeah, he's the recluse. He never comes out of his house. So, how to do that, how to be a social being, how to respect the forces that have been programmed in, whether it's deeply programmed on the level of genetic code or culturally programmed, how to respect these forces, understand these forces so as not to suffer and not to cause other people to suffer, being a social being. Often, you know, we we swing between these two poles of, uh, on the one hand, having ideology around dependence. Like, if only we could really connect, I'd get something from you, and then I'd feel safe. So there's a, a kind of dependency. Like, I need stuff, I need things from the people I'm relating to. And so my job as a social being is to go get what I need. And so I have this relationship of dependence. I'm dependent on getting what I need in order to be happy. And that, we're all doing that in our own particular ways. And we're all being stressed out by that. And because we notice that stress, then we pick up another ideology. You call that independence. So from seeing relationships in terms of dependence, like what can I get? If I can get you to really like me, then I got it. I got what I needed from you. Now I just got to maintain that. To I just, I don't want to have to be dependent on you. I don't want to be dependent on whether you think I'm good at what I do. I want to be independent. I don't care what you think. I don't care how you behave. We were just, Wynn and I were recently listening to Pandora, and we got that uh, Simon and Garfunkel song, I'm an Island, right? That idea that, yeah. And we can, we can mistake both of these as being, you know, the way to go. To get really skilled at getting what we need from the different groups and individuals that we relate to. And we don't care about being independent because if we're competent at getting what we need, we don't mind being dependent. Being dependent is only a problem when we're dependent on something but can't get it. (laughs) Then it's a problem. And then we start thinking, I forget being dependent. I want to be independent, not need anybody. And then that 
also is stressful. So, you know, the way the Buddha taught, it's really about coming into alignment with nature, really understanding everything externally and internally as a movement of nature. So these desires, the desire to connect, the desire to be part of, all these different social desires are movements of nature to be understood as movements of nature, not as self, not as good or bad, but just for what they are. Just think about how much suffering there has been in our fear and misunderstanding around sexual energy or around power in relationships or difference. How much suffering there is around belonging those who belong, those who are on the inside, and those who are the outside of the circle, who are different than me, not the same, don't belong. So how can we have a body, have this social programming, genetic and cultural social programming, and not suffer? Is that possible? So that's really the, you know, the purpose of the class is to begin to look closely at all of that social programming with fresh eyes, not judgment, not believing that it's me or mine, but it's there, it's clear, I feel it. I see it being acted out in me, around me. But we can practice seeing it as nature. And sometimes these forces are responded to or acted on. They're still nature, but they're acted on with a wrong understanding. So I'm taking it personally or somebody else is taking it personally. And then there are consequences to that. And other times, I or others have a different understanding. Like when we feel lonely, there can be the understanding that, well, of course, of course there's this unpleasant, this very deep, resonant, unpleasant feeling of being alone. Of course. When the conditions are like this in my life, then often this very deep, resonant feeling that I call loneliness arises, and it's like this. So we don't have to personalize it, or we don't have to assume that I I or this life is doing something wrong because there's loneliness. Same with joy, feeling a lot of Beautiful feelings of belonging. We tend not to want to pay attention like when there's a lot of harmony, a lot of uh, wholesomeness in our relationships. We tend not to notice that, but it would be very good to notice the harmony. I mean, even something as simple as noticing the harmony, the nice feeling of being in a room with other people like we have right now that it's just this nice feeling. That when people come together and they feel safe, it's really nice, like this.
by working on relationships, all the little and big relationships in our life, I find uh, that it is so reflective of this basic relationship we have to the body, to the heart, and to the mind itself. And in a way, even though our lives seem, appear to be so complex, the relationship is pretty basic. One of the things we'll do next week is, uh, again, another exercise from Walwood's book about our basic grievance pattern. You know, we have a, uh, some basic patterns that got set in motion early on. I mean, not to oversimplify things, but then, you know, because we're a pretty simple organism, when in doubt, we're going to use the same assumption that we've used previously. We just keep forcing the same assumption on every situation. So, you know, for myself, and this would be really good to begin to explore some of these basic patterns, they'll look different because that pattern is being imposed in different situations with different people who have their own particular conditioning, different situations. So it will look a little different, of course. But like one of my basic patterns is like not feeling taken care of. And, you know, there were probably reasons for this, like being the middle child. (laughs) I had three older siblings and three younger siblings. Or, you know, my mom and dad having a hard time when I was a kid, just getting along. And they just didn't have. Or just culturally, you know, my parents' generation, they didn't indulge children. (laughs) It's different now, I think. So, but... The point, the the really valuable point is noticing how interesting it is to notice that pattern of not feeling like not being taken care of, arising. (laughs) And it's so, it's so, the mind is so creative how it makes it fit. You know, it's like how it can somehow creatively make all these different situations in my life be about that. (laughs) As if that actually, I mean, of course, these primal stories that we use over and over again, they do sort of fit because life is a creative endeavor. So what life actually is, is sort of what we bring to it, what we project onto it as much as anything else. And then, the world tends to respond like if somebody's constantly projecting, you know, uh, you're not really taking care of me, well, people don't want to take care of that kind of person. <laughs> you see, and there's so many natural feedback mechanisms that exist that we together co-author these stories or reinforce these stories for each other. And they get deeper and less and less examined, reflected upon. So this is a great opportunity. How you relate to your body, how you relate to your thoughts, how you relate to all the little and big things around you, the people around you, the people who are checking out your groceries at the cash register. What? What do you, what does your mind, heart tend to bring to relationships? And don't always think of this in terms of bad or unskillful. Because it might be quite wholesome, relatively speaking, what the mind brings. But just to want to unpack it and start seeing it. And to begin to see... um, to see the similarities or the strands that keep getting repeated in different ways. The different ways we feel alone. The different ways we feel responsible for fixing 
super controlling, you know, being the the one who has to, you know, if I don't do this, this whole system of cause and effect is going to break down. I am here to be the distributor of karmic fruits. So if you do something wrong, you know, I have to, you know, all the little ways where we feel that we have to do something in this relationship. We're the one who has to say this, or we're the one who can't say this. Because once you start to see these patterns, then you can start to play the edges a little bit. So that, not so much that the pattern even needs to be changed, but what actually needs to be changed is the idea that uh, that things are solid or things are fixed. So when you do something a little out of the box, you speak up instead of staying quiet in a situation, or you stay quiet instead of being assertive and speaking up, or instead of being the one who needs, you're the one who gives. So all these different dynamics, we kind of break the pattern. And then the mind realizes, oh, it was just a pattern. It wasn't a reality or a truth. It was a habit. And of course, it will feel stressful to break the habit, but it's also liberating to realize that there are more degrees of freedom because that's how it happens. You know, in in these different relationships, we tend to settle into patterns. And then because it may be a very unhealthy pattern, but it's a known thing. (laughs) So we just keep falling into the same pattern because it's predictable and it's and it takes a kind of assertive or a fearless energy to do something different differently than we have done before to break the pattern or we're waiting we you know like in my mind it's like well it's not my responsibility that person should break the pattern <laughs> you know so but remember we're interested in this subjective experience so even though on a conventional level we're in relationship with each other, we don't, we're never actually helpless to whether the other person is interested in, you know, seeing their stuff. Otherwise, we'd be doomed. You know, if, like, I can't grow, I can't wake up, I can't become a wiser, more loving human being unless the people I'm interacting with are in the same place and are as interested as I am. So I don't think that's true. I think we can make relationships healthy even when the other person is being unaware. Now, being having a healthy relationship for someone might mean not actually interacting with them, except when they come up in our mind, like walking out of the room and not going back. So, but the way we're going to know whether the way that we're relating to that person is healthy is here in our heart. Like, what's the residue? What's left over? What's still happening here? Is it an entanglement, a weight, a burden? Does it generate hate and fear or a sense of lack? Something's missing, or something else. A sense of, uh, like you know, if you've had a really wholesome interaction, it isn't even, it isn't that sort of, oh, that was so great. No, it's like, like when you have a really nice meal, and it just feels right. The body feels like it got what it needed, and it's the same thing in with relationships. It's What's left is the absence of suffering, the absence of uneasiness. It felt really just right. And the mind isn't confused about that good feeling, that even, full, alive feeling. Because it knows it, it can just leave it alone. 
doesn't neurotically have to hold on to it. No, but uh, I, I think what I was saying is that after you've interacted or no matter what the other person is thinking or doing, we can heal here in our heart. We can heal how we're relating to the person, even if they're being despicable or really ignorant or whatever, we can still heal the way this heart, this mind is relating to that person. And the way we know that is after any interaction, which could not actually involve being with the other person. It might be the thought of the person arises in our mind, and at that moment we're relating to the thought of the person or the image of the person. But we'll know when after a moment of relating what's left in the heart. And if what's left in the heart is a, a wholesome feeling, right, then that's, that's how we know the relationship or the way of relating is wholesome. So the feedback is immediate. Just like when we're on the surface looking like we're nice, but underneath we're kind of, you know, trying to make a point or trying to you know, deliver some karmic fruit to that person (laughs) that we think they should be getting, then if we had the wherewithal to be present with how it is, we would feel that something's off. There would be some turmoil or uneasiness in the heart. Even if we scored the points we were trying to score in that relationship, something wouldn't feel good. And we tend to cover it up. You know, we This is where these ideas we have about relationships come in. They mask the suffering. Of course this is difficult. (laughs) You know, we assume, don't we, isn't this true? We assume that uh, the heart should hurt or something like that. But some things are just painful. And it's true, some things are just painful. But this is the the amazing thing about this world of relating. We can always relate in a beautiful way to what's painful. And that way of relating is actually beautiful. Even if we're relating to real loss, like we really love somebody, they seem to really love us, but for whatever reason, we can't be together. Some ways that we live or patterns in our personality, it just doesn't make sense to spend time together. So we're not spending time together. And there's that real painful feeling of loss. Something that was there isn't there anymore. Or just another kind of loss, like a death or somebody moves. But we can relate to that feeling of loss in a very skillful and beautiful way. And so what the mind will see if it looks is that it will see the health of that relationship, that way of relating to the pain of that relationship. And it will leave it alone. It won't it will understand that it's already what needed to be done has been done. And I bet we all know this experience because a lot of our relationships, moments of relating, are relatively simple and relatively wholesome. And But we tend not to notice the, the very ordinary, wholesome interactions we have many times each day. But now, because of this course, we can notice that, and we can notice what's left in the heart, which we tend not to notice. We tend to notice when the heart is burning with lust and anger. We don't tend to notice after a nice, simple, wholesome interaction we have with somebody. But that even, that sort of 
the heart liberated from any weight, that's a good thing to notice. We'll learn something from those. Generally, those nice feelings, even feelings, will arise with more neutral relationships because they're not complicated. You know, like you sit next to somebody on the bus or you, you know, have a little interaction with someone waiting in line somewhere. And it's just simple and wholesome and you part ways. And if you we look at our heart then, we'll notice that. Oh, yeah, that worked pretty well. That was pretty good. So then what does that look like in the more complicated places? Because what was there was non-judgment, non-attachment. Like uh, Robert Thurman, I, I use this little story that he used in one of his talks. He's a Buddhist scholar, mostly in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, I think at Columbia still. And uh, But he has this really wonderful image. You know, if you're in New York commuting in the subway and it's really crowded and people, you know, this goes back to people being different than us. And, you know, well, we just, we have our own particular ways of being tight and disconnecting because it's just 10 minutes and then I can get out. But if we were going to be in that subway car with all those different people for eternity, we'd have to have a different strategy. So these simple relationships that just last, you know, 15 seconds or two minutes, it's relatively easy to be skillful. It's much harder when we're working with this person for the foreseeable future or we're married to this person or we're related to this person or we're, you know, whatever, neighbors to this person. So then we, that's where we have to uh, spend a little bit more time understanding how it might be possible to not suffer, to be in relationship, to be in an ongoing relationship or relating in an ongoing way, that the heart stays clean and light and free, no residue, no trace. You have an interaction, but there's no trace left after it. It's a little bit different than like wanting a a glowy, warm, gooey, nice feeling. And there's nothing wrong with nice feelings. But we're... in. In practice, we're actually more interested in lightness and freedom than creating something beautiful or beautiful in, in a sweet, luscious kind of way because when we have a lot of sweetness and lusciousness, then we're afraid when it goes away. And then we neurotically try to recreate it to get that back. So what we're doing in this path is we're cultivating an appreciation for lightness and peace as opposed to perfection or heaven or luscious, warm, perfect relationships. But to be uh, willing to have any number of different kinds of relationships but without any trace left over. So next week we'll meet in small groups and uh, the handout if you didn't get one, there's a questionnaire. And some of the, the questions relate to things we'll be talking about far down the road. But you might just sort of go through it once this week, jot some things down, and then each week just revisit the questions and your responses may deepen and become more subtle as the weeks go by and you do more reflection and more study and more practice. It isn't actually, yeah. And I did make copies, I think, for enough for everybody, so everyone could take one with them. A couple more things before we end, but let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Just time for one or two breaths. Thanks for coming, everyone. I feel really good about this adventure we'll have together. I feel like we could study relationships 
forever and we would learn everything we need to learn. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.